a, uh, a minion all the time and minister more. Is there anything else anybody else needs to say that I might have missed? Can you slide over a little bit so I can sit on my corner? <laughs> she doesn't bite. It's all right. I can even flip it if you want. Yeah, that's what it does. There he goes. My godly son-in-law, take us home. All right, so we are in Shoftim, Parashat Shoftim, which is um, Judges in Hebrew. And um, if you don't have a copy of this, the Midrash Rabbah, highly recommended, very cool. This is Jewish commentary. It is um, kind of your best hits of Jewish commentary for all of the different uh, Parashot. And you get a whole bunch of different rabbis. Sometimes they give you their names, sometimes it doesn't. And some of their thoughts and ideas on the portion, sometimes it's stories, sometimes it's Holocaust, sometimes or uh, things to do. Sometimes it's simply um, kind of cool analogies or, or imagery you might not have thought of. Um, but this week, Shoftim is the is the portion. It starts off talking about judges, and throughout the portion, actually, you have multiple references to judges. And uh, I think it's kind of cool then that the uh, the commentary starts off by talking about justice, the importance of justice. So I'm going to read a little part of it here. It says Rabbi Simeon ben Gamliel said, "Do not make mock of justice, for it is one of the three feet of the world." Why? But the sages have taught. On three things the world rests, on justice, on truth, and on peace. Know then full well that if you rest judgment, you shake the world, for it is one of its pillars. The rabbis say, great is the power of justice, for it is one of the feet of the throne of glory. Whence this? For it is said in the Psalms, righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Mercy and truth go before thee. God said, since the punishment for resting judgment is so severe, take great heed. Uh, and then one of the reference they also have in here talking about the importance of justice they, uh, they compare it to the idea of a, of a father who has a garden, his own little like special garden that he really loves and adores and he has a son of his children that is, uh, you know, you're not supposed to have a favorite but in this case the story he has a favorite he has a favorite son and he decides that the son that he loves so much he will also give the garden that he loves so much and so the, the commentators say um this is almost the way that God does with his, uh, with specifically with the garden. He says he loves Israel. Israel is his child. He loves Israel so much. And he says, um, of all the nations whom I have created, I love Israel. As it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. And of all that I have created, I love only justice. As it says, for I, the Lord, love justice. So the Holy One, blessed be he, I will give what I love to the people whom I love. In other words... Um, justice is very precious to God and so he has given it to his people in his Torah and it's like it's a gift you know I think that sometimes we don't think of justice that way we think of justice as like a rod you know it's really tough it's stern it's it's unbending it's like it's the negative side you know back in the day if you if you came from the church background you probably remember you know there was the mean God in the Old Testament and there was the nice loving God in the New Testament somehow we, we missed the fact that basically all of the stuff we learned about Messiah came from the Old Testament and the Messiah at the end of the New Testament is like wiping out his enemies and all that stuff. So not nearly as you know homogenous as they wanted to make it seem. But the point trying to get at is that the God is the same throughout the whole thing. But the justice isn't bad. And I think that sometimes it's easy to think that somehow it's a negativity. But God creates justice. God is something that he loves, something he does. But he also recognizes that guys, people, us on earth, we need people to have responsibility for justice. So he gives judges to create that authority structure so that men can go to somebody and um, 
uh, basically that has, has that level of authority, has that power, which is interesting because most other religions have that one guy, that one and only guy, who just happened to be alone with God in the middle of a cave, in the middle of nowhere, and he just walks out of the cave and says, by the way, I just want to let you know, I've talked to God, and you should all listen to me now because I'm the only one who can talk to God. I got the plates to prove. I got the plates to prove. Yeah, right? right. So, but what's interesting is the Torah is not structured that way. It's true that Moses speaks to God face to face. There's a special relationship there. But Moses also speaks to God in front of the entire millions of people of Israel on Mount Sinai. When we're right over here, the beginning of the Torah, if you look about the calendar, so it's on the wall. So, over here, we've got Adam, Noah, Abraham, King David, Messiah, Yeshua, Rashi. Each wall's a thousand years, basically. And then us over here. So if we're coming from Abraham, this is the Exodus, giving the Torah right here in Mount Sinai. So we're right here in Mount Sinai. That's a miraculous experience. Millions of people hear the voice of God. We're going to touch on that later in this portion. But that's different. That's different from any other, like pretty much any other religion. There's this group experience, and then God entrusts that to men. He actually asks and encourages his people to read his word, to interpret his word, to apply it to their lives, it's not just, here's a slate of 19 things you have to do exactly like this, and that's the end of it. It's a process. You kind of work through it. God understands that even the application of what's very settled sometimes takes, takes time to figure out, okay, how do I apply it to this specific situation? So he specifically uh, encourages us to find people to follow. Judaism encourages the, uh, has their own structure, but they also have the structure of the disciple. You find that guy that you wanted, that rabbi, that person that you want to hang out with. Perkei Avot says, sit in the dust of their feet. Find those people who teach you well and spend time with them because you want to learn from them. And this is how we learn from justice. And it's interesting because at the very beginning of this portion, it says you shall have just judges and officers in all your cities. And then throughout the portion, you've got opportunities where they're saying, and the judge shall say this, and you should better do what he says. Or if you have a question, you should go to the judge. So God establishes the judges, and then he shows you how to apply it. Yes, sir. So Jerry Siegel and Joseph uh, Schuster took this idea this, from Shoftim, or clearly from their cultural background, and created a, a, a superhero uh, that would stand, a messianic figure that would stand for truth, <laughs> justice, in the American way. Now, what we, I mean, we think about it, we go, well, that's kind of silly, really. But when you understand that this portion becomes the foundation for a for a Western civilization's version of of jurisprudence, mm -hmm. that we actually have a we we believe in a in a just society mm -hmm. because of this portion. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty remarkable when 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 you see it permeate even things as 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 minimal as a comic book mm -hmm. that you know teenage boys and girls. Read, well, adults as well. Read, you know, and get some value from. We actually learned that there is some, there is somebody that's watching, and it's gonna turn out correct whether you like it or not. Right. And we never looked at that justice as bad. That's what justice is that's always. True. That's a good point. Correct. Maybe and it's powerful. beneficial. He's more Jerry powerful Siegel than us. He will be Superman, Superman, by the way. For this Thank you. Yeah, yeah Superman. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought you would have got that when I said truth, justice, the American way. Yeah. yeah. Did they use the line in the movie? I yeah, know. You right. make a comic yeah, book, right. so I'm like, who hears these comic yeah. books? Yeah, Gloria, we knew what I was talking about. Yeah. 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 But the but the All right, of course, yeah. yeah. Geeks Superman. all knew this. Right. <laughs> Superman has that 
But yeah. Superman, the creators of Superman, were Jewish, and you see a lot of messianic imagery in them. But one of the things that this Sorry, person also to establishes... I was trying to... I was actually trying to... Yeah. No, it's good. To apply, to apply to that. the true geeks in the room are. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it was a test, and you guys passed. Right. But no, the um, but the idea is that you're right because the justice of the Western society is different from other parts of the world. We don't have the one dude sitting on the throne at the top that goes live, die, live, die. We have a group. That's Nazi. Yeah. You know, we don't have mob rule either, like Romans, where it's like, yeah, he should stay up. No, he should go away. You know, whatever. It's like you have a structure, a very structured system where um, you have people who are appointed, and they're given that authority, and we have to do what they say. And interestingly enough, the, at the end of this portion in your, in your Humash, the sages comment that they mention kings in this parsha, but the king does not overrule the judges. The judge's word is final. Which is very bizarre in this time period. I mean, why would you have a king whose word isn't final? But it's exactly what we have today. Our system of government is based on stuff like this. We have a president who's, well, he's acting more and more like a king. But the point is, you have a president who's in charge, and he can't, he's not supposed to overrule the judges. The judges are supposed to be independent of him, because the idea is you want to have some you know, impartial people who can apply justice. Why? Because justice is important. Justice is the structure of society. Without justice, you have chaos. I think it's also good, uh, the whole point of appointing leaders and, and judges and things like that, especially after uh, Yitro comes to Moshe and says that this is too much for you, you need to appoint people within the right. community. I think this is also validity for some of the, the teachings of the rabbis and, and the uh, oral Torah, as it were, because you know, a lot of people say that, well, they're just making some of this stuff up, but look at it in terms of the Constitution. You know, they're... Uh, We've got judges and courts who take what is written in the Constitution, and what do they have to do? They have to interpret it on a situational basis. And so that, that's really one of the best examples for what we have in terms of uh, the teachings of rabbis. And I think that like throughout this, that's what I mentioned earlier, like finding those teachers, regardless of what they might be. Because you do need, if you're an island that's risky, just put it that way, if you're all by yourself, then there's questions like, well, how do you know that you're right and nobody else's? Um, if you're blessed to have an amazing father like I have, who's been studying scripture since longer than I've been alive, and you have a great father-in-law like I have, and you got it from both sides, and they don't always agree, which means that I get to pick you know, which one I like the best. <laughs> you know, no, they normally agree. The point is that um, then, yeah, you're right. So you become you become a judge yourself. There we go. But no, the point is that you then, uh, when you have those resources built in, that makes it really easy. But if you don't. You know, and some people don't. You do have to look. You have to find people, um, mentors, people to follow, and that's, a, that's an important thing to locate somebody else to learn from. Because you can run the risk if you're all by yourself of being very much confused or just making it up as you go along, which can be risky. Um, one of the things here, as we get into talking about justice, uh, if you look about some of the things it says, in verse 19 it says, "You shall not pervert judgment. You shall not respect someone's presence, and you shall not accept a bribe." For the bribe will blind the eyes of the wise and make just words crooked. Interestingly enough, the, the Torah actually encouraged you both not to respect the, the rich person, but also not to respect the poor person. Amen. Because that's a problem that we tend to see in, in society as well, where it's like, well, well, we'll help out the poor guy because the poor guy is, you know, um, weaker in society. But we don't like that right rich person. So it's like... If there's, especially you see like today in like lawsuits and things, a lot of times, oh, the big mean corporation... 
You know, we're going to hammer the big mean corporation. Who cares who's right or wrong? They're the bad guys. And it's like, well, that's not justice. That's vigilante making it up as you go, but it's not justice. Justice is who's right, who's wrong, and we're going to base it off of that, not based on the work. Some of the traditions, interestingly enough, surrounding some of this, I thought was really fascinating. One of them was <laughs> the judge would come, uh, was encouraged to, like, if they had two guys come in, one's wealthy, one's poor, he's like, okay, look, wealthy guy, you need to either come in dressed a little, a little bit less impressive than you are right now, or you need to buy clothes for the poor guy, because obviously this doesn't look good to people. The other one they say, if you, if, you see, if you see two people come in and you're like, oh, man, he's so guilty, <laughs> it's so obvious, you talk really nice to him. Because you don't want, after the case is over, him to go, the judge had it out for me. From the get-go. I just knew it. He just didn't like me, and that's why he decided that. Because they're trying to argue that you want to make sure that your justice is being meted out appropriately and not based on whether or not you like the person or how wealthy they are. Yes, sir. So on the point of taking a bribe, uh, there's a cool statement in the, this is the Midrash Tankuma, which is another uh, compilation of Midrashim. Uh, dating back to about the fourth century common era. Uh, Earlier than Midrash Bar. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Hama Bar Oshaya said, a man who is concerned about his vision will pay enormous fees to a doctor even though it is doubtful whether or not he will be healed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone with an eye condition or injury. Mm-hmm. Yet one who takes bribes, blinds his eyes, perverts justice, causes that Israel be exiled from the land and brings famine to the world, as it is stated, Pursue absolute justice that you shall live. Mm. So, mm. so when it talks about don't be blinded, he, he literally says, "Who wouldn't spend whatever resource you have to re, to uh, you know to regain your physical eyesight, and yet by taking a, uh, a bribe, you're blinding, you're, you're you're blinding, blinding yourself, right? And you're bringing all this other harm to to um, to the people of God and, and your, your fellow brethren." So. Yeah, it's a good T- point. Taking a bribe is bad, but giving a bribe could be considered worse. Although some people think, well, it's okay to bribe as long as I'm not the taker of the bribe. I'm not being corrupted. My parents lived in a very corrupt society mm-hmm. growing up and uh, overseas, and and had a standard they always lived by. They never took a bribe. When I got my driver's license at, at age 16, I went with another friend, and his his parents paid a bribe because you couldn't get it otherwise. I mean, we took the test and everything, but you just couldn't get an appointment. My parents were so upset. I mean, they were like Mm. beyond, I mean, I was like in hot water for six months because although it was done not with my knowledge, but basically the fact that I had not told them before it happened that that they had, that a bribe had been given them on my behalf, they Mm. just really upset them. So Mm. it was very bad to give a bribe, even though it may seem innocuous to you. You're corrupting another person. Mm. And one of the things we're going to see, I think, throughout this portion that really hits in is where does justice come from? Because part of the problem, the whole idea behind a bribe, is it's really saying that God's not in charge, if you think about it. Basically, it's saying, I have to do whatever it takes to get my... I have to manipulate the system to get justice done. And it basically says God is either not in charge or he's not just. Because otherwise, it would be taken care of, like inherently. And throughout the portion, as you're reading through this, you will see that God's system of justice doesn't really match up with some of our ideas of justice because, oddly enough, it seems like God's not always so concerned about nailing the guilty party, per se, versus making sure it's done the right way, which is a different mindset. It's not just making sure that they're punished, 
but making sure it's done the correct way. And the reason I think that's the case is because at the end of the day, it's really in God's hands. Even if you miss the guy, he gets away with it, quote unquote. He doesn't really get away with it because there is a judge who sees everything Amen. and he watches all. So along the way, you might think to yourself, this is not a good system because, I mean, it takes two witnesses. What do we got DNA evidence? Why can't we use that? You know, whatever it might be. I'm sure there's Holocaust for all those things today. But the point that I'm trying to get at is, even maybe not, maybe it is just two witnesses. But the point that I'm trying to get at is the system, the system we have today says, get the guilty guy. we got to get the guilty guy. Very important to get the guilty guy. And God's system is like, but you got to do it the right way. If you don't do it the right way, then that's not really justice. That's just simply punishment, which isn't really what God's all about. And in fact, Judaism even goes so far as to say that with this stuff, like for example, in the next portion it talks about the, the bad city, right? You find out this city's committed idolatry, they've left God, and you go and inquire and you find out, and there's a very stiff penalty. And at the end of it, though, it talks about that like you have to have at least two witnesses. You have one, it doesn't count. Well, Judaism took that, and because they saw the importance of justice, doing it the right way, and mercy, they actually would try very hard to disprove the witnesses. Because if you could get the witnesses to contradict each other, they were no longer valid, and you couldn't punish the person because you had to have two witnesses who agreed. So they would, they would interrogate them pretty rigorously to make sure that their stories lined up, to make sure that they actually saw that, that it actually happened. And the thing about it is crazy because you're like, they're letting them get away with it. But that's not really what's going on. They're trusting God to mete out the justice, but they want to make sure that they don't mete out justice that's not necessary and do it the right way. It's a different way of looking at it, but I think it's a very healthy approach, and it reminds you of the sovereignty of God. I've got you, and then I've got Marianne, and then you. Good? Just one of the coolest stories to illustrate the point about a bride blinding the eyes is uh, Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. There's a story told that he was working on a case, and out, out of the blue, he felt himself getting very favorably disposed to one of the people involved and so he kind of like was a little bit worried about that so he excused himself and had someone else sort of um, judge the, the case don't you and wish he they found out, like that today <laughs> right well he and then he found out after the fact that he had some money slipped into his coat pocket and he didn't even know about it and it actually affected Whoa. his judgment toward the people and so he said to himself and all of his disciples like how true this verse is. Like, right. even if we don't know that wow. we've been given a bribe, it does blind the eyes wow. of the righteous. So that's pretty scary. It's a cool story. Yeah, actually, along the uh, lines of uh, interest, because also rules about interest, similar, this reminds me of that. Judaism has all these traditions about being careful not to give interest. You know, okay, you give someone a favor and you kind of expect to get a favor back. You know, it's like, I don't know, I think that bribery might go further than just like the straight up. Hey man, can you help me out? You know, like when you're manipulating people, that's that mm -hmm. that runs the risk of being dangerous. You know, I'm gonna take this person out to lunch so they'll you know help me out. You know, whatever. This is why you do your job, right? I work in compliance. My job is to make sure that we don't bribe government officials, actually, even by accident. Yeah, there's actually another story of a rabbi who excused himself because one of the parties involved was a crying old lady, and and all the people were like, well, why did you excuse yourself? And he said. Do you think bribes can only come in the form of money? Tears <laughs> <laughs> are the bribes. I'm, I'm going to be. To, to, um, I'm not going to be fair in this case. So mm. he, he had wow. someone else who didn't see her cry actually judge the case. Wow. Yeah. See. Yeah. It's something really think about. Like... We've got. I got Marianne, and then um, my father-in-law will come back over here. Well, that's obviously one thing I was thinking of too. That bribes come in all kinds of different ways and forms. But another thing to think about too, and something that you were saying made me think of it. 
So basically, you're saying that the ends do not necessarily justify. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Especially in, in, in God's mm -hmm. system of justice, it almost seems to run counter to that, mm -hmm. where it's like the means justify the end. Like, if you don't do it the right way, it, regardless of what the result is, it's the doing that's important, which is a very different way of looking at it. But again, it, it's reminding us who is in charge. How does this work? It's God's system. I got you, and we're back over here, and then back to here. We're, we're to appoint judges in our gates, and these men were to be men of honor, uh, above reproach, etc. And, uh, and this is where the elders sat. Mm -hmm. And many times the elders were, in fact, the judges. Uh, so I would, I would remind us of, of two times in the scripture that we are brought into contact in some way with the elders in the gates. The, the first time, uh, of course, is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And mm. uh, we find that uh, Lot. Lot is sitting in the gates. And it implies that he has become a part of the society and he has been recognized as an elder and is in their uh, their wasn't country. judging too well because they didn't seem to listen to him at all. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know the the question of who appointed you as a judge over us mm -hmm. as the mob is trying to get in kind of questions what was going on. But still, he was in the gates. Now, was he there just to see people coming in as he did with uh, with the messengers to try and protect them? Don't know. But it's something that we want to remember, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second time is uh, with Boaz uh, and uh, mm -hmm. Ruth. Um, forerunners of our Messiah, uh, where Boaz was uh, wanting to uh, affect a legal transaction, and he went to the gates where the judges and the elders were and did the whole sandal deal. Which is the method of how you did it. Exactly right. So um, this is not something we should read and just gloss over and go, yeah, what's, we know, what's the big deal? But we've got at least two that come right to the top of my mind. Well, then you also have Proverbs 31, you know, he is uh, respected an as an elder in the gates. gates. You know, that's the same thing. So um, th those are things to uh, to remember. And again, for those who uh, didn't catch the, uh, the Superman uh, allegory there, there is no question for those that say that we don't live in a Christian nation. I don't believe we do. I don't think we ever did. But the Judeo-Christian ethics and morals that are defined in the scriptures of Israel Amen. are what our jurisprudence is based mm -hmm. right. that's, a, that's a fact it came right from the scriptures and it is historically undeniable so it is probably silly for us to say that we live or lived in a Christian nation but we certainly live in a nation whose laws are based on the scriptures of Israel and we should not shy uh, away from uh, making that claim and standing on it. Could you say that justice now is more corrupt and perverted than it was like now? I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for it's those that want to remove the history yeah. and say that we were never intended to be Christian, biblical, or otherwise, I mean, the fact that it is now uh, presumably against the law to have the Ten Commandments uh, displayed on the, Rather uh, ironic. On the walls of our, right. our children's public indoctrination centers is, <laughs> is, is, uh, is, is an amazing thing. But of course, the liberals that would have us do that are blind. They've already been blinded, and they don't see that when we did that, when we took God out of the public indoctrination centers in the early 60s, our entire society... Well, if you look at Judaism's model, God's model, rather, that he's given to the Jewish people in the Torah, he's trying to create a society that is just. 
So it's more because that's the thing is I think that today a lot of the rules and laws, even even the ones that were based on the Bible, are more about band aids. They're more about trying to fix the problems that are in society because we haven't really been able to figure out what fixes society. It's a much bigger challenge than trying to make sure that we keep bad guys in prison and good guys in the street. It's a it's a bigger deal to try and make a society in which there are no bad guys. It's a lot harder. But Judaism's model, the God's model that he gave to the Jewish people of taking care of the poor, of making sure that you don't manipulate the system, of making sure you have authorities that you respect, of making sure that when people do bad things, and it is proven, that they have stiff punishments, and making sure that if it's not provable, and the witnesses thing I think is really important. One of the things that God really, really gets onto the Jewish people for in or Israel and in the prophets is a lack of shame. In other words, they were just flaunting it. They could do whatever they wanted, and it didn't even matter anymore, and they didn't care who saw. Because part of the idea of having the two-witness rule and these very stiff penalties, I mean, you've got capital punishment for a lot of things, but only if you have two witnesses. The model, I believe, behind that is if people are afraid to do things in public, then you create a society that is not comfortable with those things. So people know that if you two people see you, all you need is two people see you commit adultery, commit murder, steal something, whatever. You get a stiff penalty, kidnap and try to sell the person off or whatever it is. Um, you get a very stiff penalty in response. Then people are much more careful about doing it in public. When it's not in public, the society as a whole is healthier. Now, there might be those really bad eggs here and there, but God says, I'll take care of them. We're going to come to that. We haven't already. There's a portion in Deuteronomy where God says, cursed is he who does this in secret, and cursed is he who does this in secret, and cursed is he who does this in secret. The point being, I will take care of those people. You don't have to worry about them. But you create a society in which um, justice and mercy and truth and loving kindness are, are pillars, are part of the society, and you won't have very much problems that will require that level of justice. That's the goal. The goal is to create an environment where it's not conducive to doing evil. I've got you and then I've got a couple other people here. So go ahead. So the 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 courts that are that are established here in the Torah, um, of which as we've all said is our current society is based on, you have the local court, the local baked in, which had to had to have at least uh, three, you know, qualified local, you know, judges, elders, um, and then there, and then if the case could not be decided at that level, uh, or or if the decision was rendered and someone didn't like it, they could appeal to what was called the the small Sanhedrin, which was twenty three um, judges, consisted of twenty three judges. That would be likened to our appellate court type system today. Uh, it would go before them, if they, and they would they would hear the case and they would make a ruling. And if if somebody was still unhappy with that, they could appeal to the great Sanhedrin um, that was seventy one judges, and and they would be equivalent to our Supreme Court today. And whatever they ruled was it that they. They, whatever their rulings became binding law on the people. Um, so we very much have this this structure in place, and the courts heard civil, criminal uh, uh, cases, and but they're also religious courts. Mm -hmm. So they also mm -hmm. 
decided on matters of uh, Torah application and whatever. Mashiach is one of the names for Mashiach is the righteous judge, hmm. and he will be the the seventy the seventy um, the seventy first um, judge on the great Sanhedrin. Uh, his title was called Nasi Prince. And you always had to have odd number of judges so that you know you couldn't have uh, sort of a hung a hung court, if you will. That's uh, why our Senate has fifty plus right. I mean a hundred plus the right. So vice president. Um, so there there's a there's a teaching within within Judaism that when Mashiach comes and you know the kingdom is reestablished, he is king, Messiah. But that's not going to do away with the court. There'll be a Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. There'll be these same court systems because that's a commandment that we have to do, mm -hmm. especially in the land. Mm -hmm. But he will be the Nasi of the great Sanhedrin. So Messiah, the righteous judge, one of his names, will be the one who is the final arbitrator of all things that come before the court. And we know that he's a righteous judge because he will not judge by what he hears, nor by what he sees, right? But in righteousness, right. we judge according to the prophets. Right. So, so Messiah Yeshua will be that that Nasi in the same heaven. Right. In that and that, he's got that that justice. Uh, um, are you on a different subject? I want to come back to you. Well, it was about the bribery and. Um, okay. Is it the same thing here? And the interest. Okay. Well, we can come over here. And I'll, I'll, we'll work our way back around again. Is it before you jump? Uh, Greg mentioned that whatever the Sanhedrin, small or great, did uh, was binding. The Master said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Mm. And I think that the, uh, the visible representation of the church today and the Gentile side has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> right. And yeah, we protested that. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, this whole binding thing. Where two or three or more gathered. Exactly right. right. That's the big <laughs> there it is. Two or three you know. Here we are. He's here. So we've got the witnesses. We've got the judges. Two, three. You know, what's bound is bound. So that, that bindingness is a legal deal. And, mm -hmm. and we need to, to recognize that there is so much application from the apostolic scriptures back into the Torah. And that's where it came from. So. Mm -hmm. It'd probably be good to expand on that because I'm not sure I understand... Um, I mean, you know, that mindset, what, yeah. what you're, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeshua made his disciples judges. Oh. In so Matthew chapter 16, where Peter says, you know, when he asked the question, who do, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. He says, you are, you are Peter. And then he says, and speaking to them, he says, and, you know, I make you, I will give you the keys. I give you the keys of the kingdom. But he says, whatever you bind in heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The idea binding and loosing is is judicial terms for whatever you permit will be permitted. Whatever you restrict will be restricted. In other words, your your word is binding. It's binding. Matthew sixteen nineteen. In Matthew 18, 18. It's not, it's not Pope Peter, it's the disciples. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because I have experienced what you're talking about and the fallacy of what you're talking about and not understood why it's not happening. Yeah. 
right. you know, pull completely and it's out of because context. I was basing it on a false understanding. Sure. Right. So I context. appreciate knowing that. Okay, well then going to a couple of things in that the bribery issue that you were talking about, to me, seems that that is exactly why our government is not operating properly right now okay. because you've Lies. got all of these government officials but who are, right. are really basing their decisions on um, a lot uh, what is it the lobbyists. lobbyists thank you very much matter we heard last night on fox you know trump was talking and he was speaking to that you know you've got people well you owe me because right. i've given you millions of dollars right. and you can't decide against me because i've already so to right. me that's a bribery right okay so anyway that makes a lot of sense secondly that's a very good point. i wanted to ask Deanna Ray is very good at that by the way <laughs> very good at that you mentioned um, interest. Yes. And that, and I already knew that. You know, we shouldn't to our brothers right. charge interest. Right. Okay. And you mentioned something about other ways of doing. Well, that. they're just saying that, like, um, when in Judaism's approach, and I'm not necessarily saying whether or not you agree with this or whatever, but I'm just saying no, like, no, no, they're I'm trying not. to apply it as far out as it would go because they're looking at all of the associated, like, they're going down the path for all the different angles to it, right? So when they're looking at um, the issue of interest, they're saying, what is interest, if you boil it down? Oh, you were saying, like, if I did you a favor, you owe me you a owe favor? You owe me, yeah, yeah. So it's basically, like, they would try to say, like, you could even it out, but if at any point it looked like you were getting something extra because you're helping out now, then that's like getting interest, because it's like, I'll give you something now, you give me back a little bit more later. You do this favor for me. Right. So they would try to be very, very careful. <laughs> or even or even doing something for someone and expecting something in right. return. We really shouldn't be doing it that way. We should right. be doing it because Right. That's the best system. I, I was I'm I'm looking for a new trigger for one of my guns. And um, I met this gentleman, nice guy. Um, he's Baptist. And he's Fascinated, eating with me. It's been kind of odd for him. Oh, anyway, long story short, I asked him if he could get this particular trigger I'm looking for. He said he'd ask and see, you know, what price he could get. So I'm looking at a $340 trigger list price. Whoa. Yeah. So he comes back and says, my cost is $180. I said, I'll take it. And he says, and he had already sold me something at a very discounted price. So I wrote back and said, John, make sure that you're making a profit. You must make a profit. And he wrote back and said, I'll need a favor. I may need a favor in the future. Oh. Well, it sounded just like the Godfather. So I wrote back and said, um, I wrote something funny back, but I said, no, no, no. It's really important <laughs> that you make a profit because I'm not going to be holding No. Yeah. I don't want the other half of this of this. Right. This deal. Right. I'd rather pay more for it mm. and be free right. Right. than he does something or wants something or needs something, and I feel beholden to him because he was gracious in that way. I can't remember which president it was. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. He had two jars. One was favors I owe and favors owed me. And he always tried to make sure that the favors owed me jar had more in it than the favors <laughs> I owe. Yeah. Which is, is that a bartering <laughs> issue too? Would that be involved? Well, bartering is allowed. No, I, say. Obviously. I, I don't barter. Because, uh, I, because there's always an unevenness, it that's exactly seems right. like. Well, you can have an agreed upon arrangement. I think the point, though, is just to say that, like, 
when you, I'm trying to think of the wise way to describe this. The idea is, it's like if I. It should be known up front. Right. This is what I'm paying. Right, and that's the end of it. As opposed to being like, well, I'll let you borrow my car this time, and then next time, you know, you take me somewhere else that's more gas or whatever. You know, like the idea is, it's like you're trying to get a little bit of something extra beyond the even exchange. Mm -hmm. If you both agree that your piece of lamb is equal to my corn of cob, then fine. But I mean, you know, what I'm saying like that, that, that's not. I don't think that's really what Judaism's arguing. They're more about the idea that like. When it looks like one party is intentionally getting a little extra so that the other party, so that they can get something now versus later, that's interest. I think it's, I think it's the cob of corn rather than the corn of cob. Right, well. How that, is that different from abroad, just real quick in this setting? How is that different from Well, abroad? I was just saying, I was thinking about like, the reason why I was applying them was because. Um, if you barter, you know what's, up, what, what's the same. And if that's barter? Barter. So she gives uh, massage therapy. Right. So you give me an hour of massage therapy, and I'll give you two hours of computer work. Right. If we agree what that transaction's about, right. we're done. Right. There's no other... But how about the other thing where he said, sometime in the future I yeah, might need a favor. A what is that? That's a problem. No. How is that different I, from bribe? We call that a bribe. Okay, that is a bribe. We okay. call that a bribe. That's All right. You that. give me... You give, right. Oh, sure, different. sure. I'll lend you my car. No problem. But what do you want to return? I'll let you know. Yeah. Hey, you know, in the future, I might need a little help. You know, you know don't worry yeah. about it. We'll work it out later. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. We don't work okay. it out. It's just good to take care of things up front. It's good to You don't want to ever be, you don't want to be um, the lendee. The, le the lendee is always servant to the lender. That's exactly This is the way that it works. That's I think I've got slave, slave. you and then you, if that's okay. Did you have, what was your thing? Yeah, so uh, you had a great point about whether or not the ends justify the means and everything, and there was just this really cool commentary this week that I just thought I would read real quick. This was from Rabbi Lumin about the verse that says, justice, justice, shall you pursue? All right, so, so the people on the tapes that can't be with us really want to hear this, okay? All right, so yeah, so it says, um, that what, how he explains why that verse is repeated, it says, why does it repeat itself? Is there just justice and an unjust justice? <laughs> Indeed, there is. The Torah is telling us to be just also in the pursuit of justice. Both the end and the uh -huh. means by which it is obtained must be just. That's cool. Mm -hmm. So both have to be just, yeah. in a sense. So the ends and the means. So Where is that scripture? Well, it, that, the, it's 1620 is the verse that Judges. this person is commenting on. Okay. Yeah, it's just not just justice. It's not justice. Hillel said the same thing. He said, "In your righteousness, be righteous." You know, it's interesting that the uh, the Midrash Rabbah comments on not only how you do something, but also um, like your overall integrity as a judge. Because they talk comment the officers. The officers. Yeah, that's another term that gets used here. Um, and we will eventually move on here. Actually, we're almost up the entire time talking about the first chapter. The point is that um, yeah, the officers are uh, the ones who meet out the punishment. Their job was to beat the guy with the sticks, or you know, whatever the the role might be for the enforcers of the justice. And um, the commentary actually says that the uh, that there were expectations of these guys. Uh, the Midrash Rabbah says, what is the force of judges and officers? The rabbis say, it implies that the officer must be as much beyond reproach as the judge, that his own deeds should make him worthy of applying the staff and the lash to others, that the man administering punishment should never himself be meriting punishment. Which is really cool because that sounds exactly like what Yeshua says when he says, judge not lets you be judged. You got, don't, don't tell your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye. 
when I've got a plank in my own eye. In other words, don't go meeting out justice on people when you're doing the exact same thing. It's hypocritical. It doesn't get taken very well. And in the end, you don't have the right, really, to do that. So they're saying that, like, even the guys meeting out the judgment, not the ones who make the decision, just the guys who enforce the decision, need to be men whose integrity is so impressive that they could never be accused of, you do it too, because that's really one of the problems we have in society today. A lot of times those guys at the top level are as corrupt or more than a lot of the people down at the bottom. So we get to a point where it's like, well, I can do it because he does it. And that's a system that doesn't work. Yes, sir. I'm going to attempt to help you get from 17 to 18. Okay. <laughs> so in 17, it's talking about this, the high court, and it would apply to any level of the court going up. It says their word is binding. Mm-hmm. It says, you sh- you, uh, verse, uh, in verse uh, ten, uh, 10, 17, 10, you must obey the words that they tell you from the place God will choose. You should be careful. You should carefully obey everything they instruct you. You should act in accordance with the teachings that they instruct you in accordance to the judgments they issue to you. So this is the base... This is the basis for Judaism, modern and ancient Judaism's found, uh, concept that a rabbi's word is final. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, within the within the the jurisprudence system, but within the even smaller system, the rabbi's word is final. He says this is the way it is. It's the way it is. Mm-hmm. So, to take us then to chapter eighteen, and we read about this one who's going to come like a prophet, mm-hmm. and knowing that he is nasi, he's also in. In the he's book of Ezekiel, he's, he's Nasi, not only of the Sanhedrin, he's not only Nasi, the prince of the of the court system, he's Nasi of the of the uh, Beit Hamikdash. He's the temple. Not, yeah. he's, he's, the, he's the prince of the temple. This is like, this is a principal character, and he r- rules with righteous judgment. So it had to be, and I'm not, I'm not for sure, because I don't know the man's mind, but Gamaliel, grandson of Hillel, was a brilliant man. I mean, he, and he seems to be a very wise man. And in Acts chapter... Five, he shows us some of this wisdom, and I, I suspect, and I may not know for sure, but I suspect that he, he's referring in, in his position as Nasi. He's actually making a determination from this portion. Hmm. Not just the portion about you will obey, hmm. but also what follows is there's going to be a top-level prophet right. who will actually have the final word. Because right. he says... When he talks about these men, specifically Peter and John, you're in Acts, right? They've been told, yeah, Acts chapter five. He says they've been told, don't go anywhere around, and they're going to say, well, how, how is it that you're still talking about them? Did we not tell you not to say anything? Remember, these are the guys that say, if you, if like we say, you do it. Right. We didn't tell. We told you not to say this. Right. right? They're talking about Yeshua. They told them not to. Now they're getting in trouble for in it. Verse thirty-four of chapter five. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Oh, excuse me, actually, go, go back a little bit. They talk about Yeshua. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, verse 34, a teacher of the law, respected by all of the people, stood up in the council. This is the Sanhedrin they're talking to. And gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. You know, we're going we're gonna to talk. We're going to have a, fi- pri- deliberation. a private deliberation. We're going to talk about you on your back. You know? That's right. And he said that men of Israel, take care that you what you propose to do with these men. So I want you to consider the fact that these are these are some these are two guys that are well known in the in the in Jerusalem most certainly probably all over the country they're already fairly well known okay uh, maybe maybe for not always good reasons but one thing they know is these guys walk around they're some righteous guys everybody knows them to be righteous men and miracle workers now because that's why they called them right because they worked a miracle they've made quite a bit of hubbub of the miracle so. 
These guys are miracle workers <laughs> that we can find no fault in them. We told you not to do this. Right. So Gamaliel know, knows there's something else going on here. So right. listen to what he says. He stood up a council. Men of Israel, take care that we propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of 400 men joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he knows Shoftim. He knows it's our job to make this decision, right? The problem is he knows Shoftim, specifically in our Bibles, chapter 18, there's going to be a prophet. And that may be the man that these men follow. Right. And if so, he's over us. Yeah. We'd be best just to leave this one alone. Leave it in God's hands, basically. And he says, reading a little further, he says, and they'll come to nothing. That's right. Or, or if it is of God, so then he's let it in God's hands. Exactly. You don't want to oppose God. God. Exactly. He's depending on the Nasi of a future Sanhedrin to decide this. Which is why. And he goes yeah. further to say that, I beg your pardon, that it, later on he says, otherwise you'll find yourselves fighting against God, God. the Nasi. Which is why we have. A sage of Israel confirming the fact that Yeshua is the Messiah. Here he is. Gamliel, grandson of Hillel, confirms that Yeshua is Messiah. That just makes me want to cry. Me too. Not only that, but we also have in Acts chapter 7, this is the story with Stephen, right, who, who is who waxes quite eloquently in the face of death and recounts the history of God's people, but picking up in verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, referring to the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of the angels and not kept it. So Stephen refers to Messiah Yeshua as the prophet, like under Moses, the just one that um, is referenced here. Which is interesting because um, one of the things about going to Deuteronomy 18, it's intriguing, is that out of, with, with the previous portion when God says, listen to your judges and make sure you do what they do, and if you don't do that, you're in big trouble, the punishment is meted out by the people. He says, if this person doesn't follow the judge, then you shall take him out and stone him or whatever, because he has violated the rule of what God has set up, violated God's authority structure. But with this one, in Deuteronomy 18, God says, if you don't listen to him, this is, um, uh, this is uh, verse, chapter 18, verse 19. This is talking about the prophet like unto Moses. And it shall be that the man who will not hearken to my words, this is God speaking, to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will exact from him. Which is really interesting, because I think that sometimes, oh, for certainly, goodness gracious, we got some very confused people in the past, unfortunately, from the um, church, and by that I put in quotes, because I don't know if we can really call them that. Um, they were out and trying to enforce this issue. You know, This is where we had horrific tragedies in history, like the Inquisition and the Crusades, the types of things where it's like, Oh, you don't believe in Jesus? Whack! You know, it's like, okay, first off, way off, way off. Secondly, did you not read your Bible? Even if it was a big enough deal to do that, that's not your responsibility. 
But what's interesting is you go into, you're talking about you don't want to oppose God. That's exactly what's going on here. God's saying, look, at the end of the day, I'm going to take care of this one. I am the judge who's going to decide who's following the prophet like unto Moses and who's not. I will take care of that. Which is a pretty scary thought, to be honest with you. Also intriguing is the fact that he says, I will raise up from among your brethren. Notice that Messiah Yeshua is, he comes in in human flesh. He's not the, um, he's not this uh, Superman character who shows up. Yeah, he doesn't land on earth, shining bright lights, telling everyone, follow me. Instead, he's very humble. He's a normal looking guy. He tends to kind of blend in, really. And it's interesting because that's exactly what the intention was, that they would have a person like us, so to speak, that would be able to convey God. In other words, they're God's, he's God's representative. And in this case, it's convenient because he is God. It makes it much easier to get the, you know, the, the message straight. That's what Yeshua says in John chapter 15. Right. He says, I don't speak my words. I speak the words. Basically I says, only I'm speak. Not I only say exactly what he says. Right. In fact, so you get that idea that he is, he is the conduit for God to the people. It's like, if you will, it's almost like he's the funnel. Because God is way bigger than we can comprehend, certainly bigger than we can handle. And Yeshua becomes that, that conduit so that we can grasp God. Without him, God would be way more infinite than we can comprehend. But he helps to condense that into something that makes sense for us. Because that's what they wanted. The people say, I can't handle listening to God on the mountain anymore. Give me a guy who will talk to me. And Moses, temporarily, kind of fills in that gap. And then the ultimate fulfillment of that is, of course, Messiah, who gives you that much more direct God to man. And then in the end, when he reigns on earth, he will also provide that, that judicial system, that, that kingship system that allows it to be more than just, here's God's words, here's God condensed for you to see, but here is actually God ruling on earth. Yeah. I got you and then I got you. Yeah. Okay, two, two quick points. Um, first is the penalty if a prophet were to speak out of turn mm-hmm. 1822 yeah. if a prophet claims to speak in the name of God and the thing does not occur and you see that it will never come about then it is a declaration which God did not say the prophet has spoken to deceive you intentionally do not be afraid of him so the first point is that um, Messiah Yeshua actually prophesied his own death and his own resurrection the means and pretty much the time and it came to pass. <laughs> I don't think anybody else in history has ever... Hard seen. to predict that Hard one. To predict. Um, second thing is that uh, we read further on here that, because uh, you mentioned the king and, and asking for a king and how we're going to get a righteous king and so forth. We need to remember that the king's responsibility, one of his responsibility responsibilities was to write his own copy of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Two copies. Okay, so God, the righteous judge... The king over his people writes his copy of the Torah, and that is his son. He, Yeshua, is the living Torah. He is God's copy of the Torah. In fact, in Greek, it says he's the icon. He's the representation of God. That's the Greek word, icon. And that the icon you have on your desktop is where we get that word from. It's an exact the memory. That's it. Mm-hmm. The memory. Yeah, I think it was kind of singing about the double, the double law thing. And for two copies, it's kind of humorous then that um, 
God's Torah actually has two givings because you have Exodus and Leviticus, and then Deuteronomy the second is law. the second. The you second also giving. have the Torah coming down in bodily form, in the in the form of Messiah Yeshua, and he comes twice. He comes twice. The Mahars Rebbe picks up on that in Psalm one also, where it says on the Torah Hashem he meditates day and night, and or in his Torah he meditates day and night. That is the Torah that he wrote, and then the Torah Hashem. And so he, he, he distinguishes between the two mm-hmm. and as if there were two distinct ones mm-hmm. and, and actually makes it clear that the, um, he, he goes so far as to say that the, the one that we write, that the king writes actually actually supersedes that of Hashem. I don't know that he means this literally, but, the, but he, he means the idea that this one is close to you and very personal and that since it's by your own hand that you should you know, you'll have a greater connection to it rather than just something ethereal that someone told me a long time ago mm-hmm. or, or there's, that there's not much connection. He, he's saying that, okay, you have both. Right. Of course, a good scribe would be writing it word for word Absolutely. from the original Torah. I got you and then that. So, to pick up on one of your comments about, about Messiah being sort of this, yeah, Hashem is... Uh, Hashem is, uh, in so many ways, incomprehensible. Right? He's he's so and he's so. outside. He transcends creation, and there's no way we, in our finite capacity, could ever wrap our minds around ever com- comprehend him. Right? But yet, there's this genuine desire to ha- to be able to relate right. to his cre- to his creation. Right. And ultimately, that is that that is Messiah. Messiah mm-hmm. becomes as it were, God on earth so that we can relate. And we see that uh, we see that with this concept of the king, right? Because we have we have on one hand um, this notion that God is, is, is our king. Right. But yet in this portion Moses says, hey, when you guys get into the land, yes, for a king. you're going to look around at your neighbors and you're going to see that they, because when we come into the land all we have is Shoftim, we only have judges. We want to. Right? Because we're going to look, you're going to go into the land. You're going to look around at all your neighbors who have these monarchs, and you're going to say, you know, we, we think it'd kind of be cool to have a king like them because, you know, like he's there relate. and we can like relate to him, right? And Moses prophesies that that's what they're going to want when they get in the land. Sure enough, if you go to the book of Shmuel, book mm-hmm. of Samuel, right? Or yeah, right. right, Samuel. You're right. Uh, when we get into the land, sure enough, what happens? We ask for a king. We ask we for start, a king. We start. Really tall guy. We want a tall guy. And and Samuel. Good looking. Samuel gets upset with the people because he's he's like, "Are you nuts? God is your king, right? You don't need a king because God is your king. No, no, no. no. We can't really relate to God. We need a king that we can relate to." And Samuel gets bent out of shape over this, and he goes to Hashem. And he prays, and Hashem says. Not a bad thing. <laughs> Not a problem. I can work with this. <laughs> Go ahead and appoint a king. Right. Right. So you see below the surface here, you see in motion. They want a king they can relate to. Right. Well, God says, I'll give them a king they can relate to, but I'm still their king. So right. king. Because, see, that's the idea. I'll the, give the, you a Benjamite first. The sages, <laughs> the sages teach that the whole kingship thing was almost like a, like a, uh, 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 almost not really like a, 
a, a, a permission granted by God, but almost kind of like a, it's not ideal, but okay, you're going to ask for it, let's try to do it the right way sort of thing almost. But really, I think a, almost like a better interpretation is what you're alluding to, the idea that there was supposed to be a king, but there's a specific king. And it's interesting that the language... Forget Saul, we want David right away. Right, well, it's interesting because the language parallels here because remember in chapter 18, he, over and over again, or multiple times, I believe, it mentions a prophet from among your brethren, among your brethren. Well, if you go back to the passage about the king, really the only characteristic that he's supposed to be, God says, like, uh, you shall surely set over yourself a king whom Adonai your God shall choose from among your brethren. So there's almost like this subtle link between the prophet likened to Moses and the king saying, this guy should be the same guy. And if it is the same guy, then as you're getting at, God will still be king. That's why Mashiach is Hashem. Right. Right. Because that's how you get that additional layer there. Because otherwise, it starts to kind of, it almost feels like, I don't know, how do we how do we match all this up? He does make it much more convenient. In Isaiah, if I could just real quick just to dovetail. In Isaiah, that's that's what we read. Over and over again, God says he himself personally will redeem the people. He himself will fix the problem of sin. He himself will do all of this. My servant will do all of this. Right. But I thought it was you doing it. Well, it's my servant doing it. Well, but, but it's the same one. Right. It's the same deal. So the other, the other comment I had with respect to the Torah that the king is supposed to write, there's an interesting uh, Midrash, this is Midrash Rav um, that Talk that talks about this. So it says, um, uh, "Let's see. Thus it is written. Then I turned myself to see wisdom and mad- uh, to see wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man who comes after the king do? It has already been done." That's a quote from Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse twelve. Midrash goes on to say, "The verse is stated regarding Solomon and Moshe. How does this verse apply to Solomon?" When the Holy One blesses, He gave the Torah to Israel. He included in it positive commandments and negative commandments. And he gave certain commandments to the king. As scripture states, he shall not have to t- he shall not have too many horses for himself, and he shall not greatly increase silver and gold for himself, and he shall not have too many wives, so that his heart turn not astray. But King Solomon arose and applied his wisdom to the decree of the Holy One, blesses he, and said, Why did the Holy One blesses he say concerning a king he shall not have too many wives? Is it not, as the verse says, in order that his heart not turn astray? I will take many wives, and my heart will not turn astray. Oops. Uh, and when you, uh, when you read a little bit more of the, uh, the fine print here, when, the, when, when Solomon wrote his copy of the Torah, this particular phrase where it says, and he shall not have too many, um, uh, too many wives, um, the Hebrew word there is the word Yarbeh, and it said, the Midrash says that that Solomon changed the yud, which is just a, a very short little stroke of the quill. He changed it from a yud to an aleph, which changes the meaning of the word to "you will have many wives." Okay. In other words, Solomon changed the Torah when he made his copy. Okay. No, no. So, um, the unusual dialogue. That cons- uh, an unusual dialogue that concerning this tran- transgression. Our rabbi said, at the time that the letter Yud, that is in the word Yarbeh, he shall not have too many, ascended heavenward 
and prostrated itself before the Holy One, blessed is he. And it ex exclaimed. So the Yud that just got, got, got yeah, no. removed from the Torah ascends to God and makes an argument. Master of the world, did you not say no letter will ever be eliminated from the Torah? Yeah. But now, by marrying many wives, Solomon is standing up and eliminating me. And furthermore, perhaps today he will eliminate one letter and tomorrow another until ultimately the entire Torah would be eliminated. The Holy One, blessed as he, responded reassuringly. Let Solomon and a thousand like him be eliminated, but I will not eliminate <laughs> even your point. What does that sound like? Jot and tittle. You. Uh, that's exactly what Matthew 5, 7. It actually makes sense because so, it's the small so strokes. Let the wisest king, Solomon, who thought he could sort of outwit the Torah by making one little small change. Wow. Slice through it. Let, let, let Solomon and a thousand kings like him pass away, as it were, but not one point, or in, in, in the terminology of Yeshua, not one jot or tittle will pass from the Torah. Well, Very good. And I'm thinking about, you know, Yod, Hey, Bob, Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, isn't there even a deeper... Significance to the yud. Well, the yud's up. I mean, it's got a lot of mystical elements yeah. and things to it. All letters do, but the yud is, yeah. I mean, there. And plus, it's interesting about the yud is it is the smallest letter. It's it's, it's got a it's yeah, it's almost hard to yeah. see. Yeah, it's, it's the yeah, hand. it's the same. It's, it's, it's work hand starts with the yud. But the plain meaning of the text is the same deal. I mean, we get it just on what was happening. Mm -hmm. right. One letter was removed, and one letter. Is what God said would never get removed. Right. Until it's like the dollar. Yeah. It's not even a letter; just a part of the letter. The dollar on, uh, "You shall have no other gods before me." It's it's right. it's it's not a hair, another. You shall have other gods before me. Right. <laughs> it's a god. You, God's you know, one. It's one. Mm. Right. So Solomon's making bribe to himself. <laughs> Something like that. He's using as we're talking at the beginning. It's like importance of finding other people to follow, so to speak, because he's using his own wisdom to undermine the Torah, which is dangerous. Yes, I want to go back to your idea of the funnel because, and you brought up too, the Ein Sof, you know, that God is so, so infinite. But this goes back to the righteous judge as well because he's he's also he's not just infinitely above us. He's all wise and all, and he's prepared for anything. And the and the very nature and the very nature when it talks about Deuteronomy 18, it doesn't say. And by the way, you're going to ask for a king. There's an implication that it's okay. Not only is it okay, you should ask for a king. And and the problem is the people wanted a king like. Like Saul, he was tall. He was good looking. You know, he's popular, right? And I mean, they wanted they wanted they wanted a king like the nations around them. Mm -hmm. And God's idea was to choose a shepherd boy, right. who's know, ready. That yeah. who is ready, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you know, it's like, I mean, David turned out to be a pretty cool guy, but he didn't surely look like him in the beginning. Right. And the idea that God used that as as the conduit. So when you talk about and 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 you know, Hasidic Judaism has this concept of the multiple layers that God has to express Himself, right. the emanations that He has that He that He uses in order to express Himself to us, mm -hmm. and you know, at this level, is so far removed from us, we can't even imagine the, the 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 difference between Him and us, and yet He overcomes it all by picking David, mm -hmm. and not only does He just pick David, He takes David, and then, you know, eighteen generations later, He has well, eighteen times fourteen. 14 generations, 14, three times? Yes. 14, yeah. 14, three times, yeah. Two more 14s after David. Two 14s, 14, yeah. two David, and then 14, right. and then 14. So he uses 28 plus generations later, and he, and he has this baby born of ill repute, 
<laughs> become his very conduit for his for his being. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's unbelievably remarkable. We can't we can't make this up. We can't even we can't even comprehend how how perfectly planned right. God made it. And when you compare Deuteronomy 18 to Samuel and the and the idea that the people in sin wanted a king, and he uses that as an as an opportunity to start the process to fulfill Deuteronomy 18 says you will have a king and he will be the prophet right it's funny you mentioned the um, the Hasidic Judaism because Hasidic Judaism has like you mentioned all these different layers these expressions of God ironically enough in Hasidic Judaism they make up a body because God doesn't have a body so to speak but they're saying that like these character traits that we understand that represent God at some level um, make up different parts of a body so it's ironic that the ultimate expression what? same thing in the tabernacle right yeah it looks like a face um, if you, if you, if you uh, look at the tabernacle from aerial vision you can kind of make out the appearance of a face in it and the idea is not to say that that's supposed to be God's image but it's like it's ironic that even within this expression of Judaism the, idea, the, the concept that the way that God's going to translate himself so that we can understand is in a form that we can understand and so here we have Messiah coming in human form to express God's And yet that earthly form is, is teferit. I mean, that earthly form is full of splendor. I mean, we, we talk constantly. When we pray in the prayers, talk about how God is and how his expression is one of glory and splendor. And yet that is exactly what the disciples, the apostles, describe Yeshua as the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And he is the, he is the a perfect expression of what is incomprehensible to us in a way that we can comprehend. Mm-hmm. We uh, oh, one more comment, and then we've got to get to the, like a final thing here because yeah, I thought we were about done. So I just you know to reiterate what we said during the Torah service that, that some folks may not have heard. To to Rick's point, the takeaway for me in this portion is the the eighteen eighteen that we are told that God will raise up another prophet like Moses. So, first off, we need to make sure that we're not allowing others, especially in the present representation of the church, to denigrate Moses. Mm-hmm. Because Moses is the standard by which you can know who Messiah is. Right. True. So, um, Rashi says that this is teaching us that there's going to be a line of prophets, one after another, prophet after prophet after prophet, starting with Joshua, all the way down, and that God will not lead the people without a voice from him. And we see that in Matthew 11. It opens by telling us that. That the prophets, beginning with Moses, went down all the way through, speaking to the people up until Yochanan HaMakbil. Oh, oh, all the way to John the Immerser. And then they stopped. And that's when we got the sign. So Rashi's not right. If you then take a look in, uh, in Deuteronomy 18 again, it's singular. It's not that there's going to be prophet after prophet after prophet. There's going to be one prophet that's just like Moses. Mm-hmm. So it behooves us to figure out, well, what was Moses like so that we can know Messiah? And if you read the apostolic scriptures, it's so clear, these guys recognize, hey, this is, I think this is the guy that Moses was talking about. I think this is the prophet. Don't you think this prophet? I think it's the prophet. So what is it? So Moses was, A, the most humble man on the planet. Number two, he had a relationship with God in that God knew him face to face. And number three, he was the redeemer of Israel. He did signs and wonders and redeemed Israel. But we see the same thing happen in Messiah Yeshua. He knew God face to face. He only spoke, as Rick said earlier, only what God told him to say. It was the words of the Father. He told his apostles, 
You show us the Father. What are you talking about? If you're looking at me, you're looking at him. We are one. And then finally, he is the ultimate redeemer of Israel. He is the one who brought salvation. He is the one that did the signs and the miracles, some of which have never been done in Israel ever before. Or again. And the, or again. And the, the Torah, we have little bits in the Torah that talk about if this happens, wow, very cool. And you have it actually happened. A man born blind from birth was actually able to see again. Never heard of before. You had, you had blind guys being healed of blindness. You had lepers being healed. Never been healed before. It's never happened. Holy cow. We got before, we've got a guy dipping in the Jordan. But now we've got, go show yourself to the priest. And the priest is like, you Gosh, i got to check the book. I don't think I know what to do with that. You know? This never happened. So, so we need to recognize and, and remember that being compared to Moses as the prophet, the one, the Jew that was brought up and chosen by God as his representative, the actual representation of the Torah, we see that that's what the writer of Hebrews does in the third chapter. He says, wow, you think Moses was cool. Here's a Colbert Comer argument from light to heavy. You think Moses was cool. He was. He was the best. He was faithful in God's house in all that he gave him to do. You know what? So was Yeshua. This is the one that's like unto Moses. This is the prophet that you've been waiting for. This is that one. As believers in Messiah Yeshua, we should memorize this. We should know this. And if somebody puts Moshe down, you know, we're not the ones that need to argue that. We should pity them. Because they'll be standing before a righteous judge who judges righteously. And he doesn't take it kindly when you ding his people. Especially not Moses. The other key parallel, I mean, there's many, many we can talk about, but the other key one for me is Moshe, which, by the way, Judaism calls Moshe Moshiach. Sages say he was Messiah. Right, absolutely. Sure sounds a lot like, Moshe also sounds a lot like Hoshea. But the the other key uh, parallel is Moshe is the only... Um, the only key figure, biblical figure in the Tanakh oh. that had, that was prophet, All three priest, and king. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. All three, which by the way are mentioned in this portion. That's right. So he, he played all three roles and the only other person that has done and or is doing or will do that is Yeshua. King David. So king David yes. was king and sort of a priest. And, and kind and of a prophet. More prophet than a priest. I mean, what he did is exactly what the king before him did that got him disqualified. Exactly. But he did not get disqualified because he was the last special of all the offices. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it just yeah. fits so beautifully. Well, you've got, um, as we've been talking throughout this whole thing, we talk a lot about justice, God is judge, and all that kind of thing. Um, to wrap up here, because I know we're getting, I know we're, we're way over here, but um, the other element of this portion that the sages key in on is. The other side of the three-legged justice, truth, and peace. Oh, it's not the American way? Oh. No, not, not the American way. But peace. Peace is the important thing. And it's really interesting because they, they key in on this verse. It shows up in verse chapter 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to wage war against it, you shall call out to it for peace. And the sages go, this is bizarre. I mean, wait, so we're going to go to war, and the first thing you do is offer them peace? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But then they say, no, 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 you don't understand. Great is peace. Peace is huge. 
Peace is really important. In fact, when we talk about um, uh, we talk about God, we're talking about like these three things, peace and justice kind of get on either side. Peace and justice kiss. You know, it's this idea that like if you just have justice, you will not really have God's nature. You have to have that balance of mercy and justice, of peace and justice. So Rabbi Akiva in the Midrash Rabbah, he keys in on this passage in Numbers where if a man suspects his wife of adultery, oh, yeah. she goes in, and you know the story, right? She, she brings the piece of paper. It's, uh, uh, one of the things they have to do is they have to write out the verse, which has the name of God written on the paper, and then they erase the, the passage and the ink into this water that she has to drink. And then miraculously, if she's committed adultery, she gets really sick and bad things happen. And if she hasn't, then everything's cool. And she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant. Oh, she will be pregnant. The idea is to say that... Um, not at that moment. Not at that moment, yeah. <laughs> that's weird. That's, that's weird. weird. No, no, no. Not like that. The it's idea, weird. That's basically the idea weird. is you're getting a promise of a pregnancy later. Because the point of this was really to fix the relationship with the husband. The husband suspects of adultery, and so they have to have peace. You want to have peace in the home. You don't want the suspicion and the anxiety and the angst continuing. That's right. So, but here's the cool part about that. Rabbi Akiva pulls this out. He says... We're allowed to erase God's name as part of the ceremony. You're not allowed to do that for anything else. It's specifically a dr- drawn from a, a passage in the Torah where it says, you shall obliterate all their names in this place. It was a recent parish, I think last week's. And he says, you shall not do so for the Lord your God. So the point is that you are not normally allowed to do this, but God gives special dispensation to erase his name this one time so, so that the husband and wife can have peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, they follow up later in, in the same Midrash, um, later on in, the, in this section on Shoftim, and they say, uh, "This is." I thought this was so cool. Um, David said, "I sought to hear what God had to say concerning Israel, and I heard that He was busying Himself with their peace, as it is said. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints." Rabbi Simeon ben Halafta said, "See how beloved is peace. When God sought to bless Israel, He found no other vessel which could comprehend." All the blessings wherewith he would bless them, save peace. How do we know it? For it is said, and we quoted this this morning twice in our in our prayers. For it is said, the Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Amen. In other words, this is like as we said in the beginning, justice is precious to God. Well, this is the same thing. Peace is precious to God. And so as we're going through life, I think it sometimes is easy to get. On the one hand, I don't want to denigrate justice and say, oh well, we don't we don't ever want to like say call a spade a spade. But on the other hand, you also have to understand how do you how do you integrate peace? How do you keep relationships good? How do you avoid causing problems where it's not necessary? And how do you make sure, as it says in Romans, when Paul's talking to us, it says, "Be at pe- as much as concerns you, be at peace with all men. You do what you need to do to maintain the, the even keel with everybody. If they got a problem with you and you've tried to fix it, they won't they won't accept it. Then whatever. But you be the peacemaker. Yes, sir." So on, on this particular passage, Midrash Tanfuma applies the uh, you shall offer peace has an interesting application. It says um, this verse um, is King Mashiach, who will, is referring to King Mashiach, who will offer them peace, as it states, and he will offer peace to the nations, and his rule will be from sea to sea, Zechariah 9.10. And if it responds with it, if it, meaning the nations, responds with peace, that is, they will restrain themselves, as it is stated. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. No nation will lift a sword against another nation, nor will they study warfare, warfare anymore. Uh, uh, Isaiah 2.4. Then, 
and it shall be that all the people found in it will pay you tribute, and you will ser- and they will serve you. For they will bring him gifts, as it is stated, gifts will be brought from Egypt. Um, and it goes on to say, but if they, um, but if they refuse to make peace with you, an evil spirit will enter them, and they will rebel against the messianic king Mashiach, and he will immediately kill them, as it as it is written. He shall smite the earth with the staff of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall put the wicked to death. That sounds like Revelation, Revelation nineteen eleven. And he will leave. And Psalm two. He will leave over only Israel, as it is stated, of the nine led him alone, and no strange god was with him. So it's interesting that uh, Midrash Tankuma applies this 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 whole thing of when you go out uh, when right. you, when you go out you try to make peace first. Right. That they apply it to the Messiah and say he'll offer peace. And if they mm-hmm. if they accept peace and they in essence um, uh, submit to him, then life's good. But if they don't, then he will make war. Utter war. It's interesting that you mention um, again talking about how Messiah will fulfill his own commandment. Um, it's kind of cool because one of the things that Midrash talks about. Of course, we know that our Messiah has commented on this issue, and he actually specifically says in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Out for peace to people you're going to go to war with. And then he compares that to God, and he says, God causes us to reign on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. Be like him. As your heavenly Father is perfect, you also be perfect. Well, the Midrash does the same thing. They say, look at God. I mean, how many people rant and rave against him, and every time they go to sleep at night... He holds their souls in safekeeping and restores them when they wake up the next morning. In other words, the idea is that God does the same thing. He gives that level of love, that he seeks that peace, even with his enemies. How much more so should we be doing the same thing? Praise God. Any other? Just, uh, the, uh, the, it's important to note that that was only to the people who were not on the list. <laughs> right. But there was a group that was on the list that actually got off the list. Right. The, the Gibeonites got off the list. And they were the they were the Hittites. Okay. They were, they were the they were the people from Shechem. Okay. Right? They were the ones that they were the descendants yeah. of the ones that Levi and Shimon came and wiped them out because of circumcision. Right. Right? They tricked them into being circumcised and yeah. they killed all, all the men, right? Well the descendants are are the Hittites. These are the ones that are living in Shechem, right? And it's them that come to Joshua when they come into the land and goes, oh, we, we came from a long ways away. Yeah, we're not one of those guys. Not, Don't worry about that. this country. We've heard, by the way, when you went up there on, on, uh, when there on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, we just came from there. Uh, we, you know, we didn't hear it, but we heard that some people that were down there in the valley heard you recite the Torah. And the Torah actually has this portion in it. So, well, we're not those people. <laughs> we, but we like to make peace with you, and they were fooled. But even though they were fooled. But they were fooled. But God still, because he respects their covenant, the covenant that he made with Joshua, even though he they even though they were deceitful, right. God honors that covenant that, that Joshua peace. makes with the Hittites, Joshua, Yeshua, uh, with the Hittites, the Gentiles, and allows them to be considered part of Israel, even though they were not only of the people that were outside the land that were enemies, they were the very people they were supposed to be utterly wiped out. Even their right. animals were supposed to be gone. Right. Because again, it goes back. It's pretty to, remarkable. Well, it's interesting because um, Rabbi. I Yen- want to be a part of that covenant, right? Mm-hmm. So I know it was by deceit. I, I know it was by deceit, and I was just trying to horn my way in, 
You know, I had old clothes and everything. I'm just nothing. But thankfully, God is going to honor the covenant that Yeshua made, Joshua made, on my behalf. Hmm. And regardless of the fact that I may still be considered an enemy, a Gentile, mm -hmm. a Hittite, hmm. I'm considered now part of Israel by the one that matters. Right. And that was the thing. It's not about peace and enemies. Um, Rabbi Gimpel uh, has this art, uh, idea that in uh, Joshua, when they go to Jericho, and uh, the two spies go in, Pinchas, as this tradition holds, it's Pinchas and Caleb. And they, uh, they go in, and he, say, he says it's so weird that they get caught. I mean, Caleb, if you've read about him in other passages, he's taking down giants at like 80 years old. I mean, the guy's like, he is macho man. And tradition, this is kind of a weird tradition, but it's kind of a cool tradition, is that Pinchas was so righteous he could actually turn himself invisible. But he was so holy, he was like compared to like the angels, and they they can go visible or invisible when they want to, so so can he. So the point is this: like, there's no reason for these guys to get caught by the by the, the forces of Jericho. Why does that happen? And they say it was all on purpose. The whole thing was a ruse to see if Rahab, if there were anybody in the city of Jericho that want, that was worthy of being redeemed. They were looking for those pagan Gentiles who might happen to be willing to jump the fence and come on their side. And they would be saved from this destruction because if you're if you're not no longer really part of the bad guys and you want to join our side, then it's all okay now. So that's like that idea that and, and to this day, God is doing that. God is seeking out. In fact, in, in in Second Peter, it talks about that. Don't think that the justice of God is delayed in coming; like it will never happen. But rather, God is merciful, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's. That's God's goal. God is trying. He's even delaying justice for the purpose of that peace to bring everybody to him. Amen. I think we need to wrap up here. So, sir, if you would finish up in prayer. Good Father, we thank you for the word of God, for preserving it for us, that we might study, understand, and obey. We pray, Father, for the rest of the month of Elul. We have three weeks to make peace. We recognize that you are in the fields seeking to make peace with us, looking for us to make peace with one another before you. Father, I pray that you find us faithful to do that, that we would be people of repentance, performing tshuva. Father, the high holy days that are upcoming, I pray for an opportunity for us to share our faith with others, that many would come to understand and uh, be obedient to you and be saved from a wicked and corrupt generation that uh, is becoming so very, very obvious. We thank you for the Sabbath, the opportunity to come together, the opportunity to have a minion. We pray that you'll bless the rest of our day as we come before you. Bisham Yeshua HaMashiach Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well done. Thank you for Bisham.